It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. Welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And I'm your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And I can't wait this week as Bob going to dive way back in time, going back to 1970. We're going to talk about the arrival of the Texas Outlaws, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, to the Florida Territory. What was Dusty like in his early years? Stay tuned and find out. Also, can't wait for this one. We've teased it a couple times now. Bob going to share his memories about the time he spent with Chris Colt out on the West Coast, in the San Francisco Territory. I'm sure some fun stories lie ahead there. All of that and so much more here this week as we jump back in time once more to the life and times of Mr. Bob Root. But first, guys, just a friendly reminder that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 in the WWF Project. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk to territories. So whether it's Georgia 1981 with Jamie Ward, the UWF in 1986 with Roman Gomez, or now Memphis 1985 with the likes of Gene Jackson and Steve Crawford, you can certainly get your territory fixed with regional wrestling. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia podcast network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast, and beyond. And hey guys, while you're at it, why don't you do us a favor, follow us on social media. You guys can start off by friending Bob. You can find him there at facebook.com slash poorbobroop. Send your friend request today. I'm sure Bob looking forward to chatting with each and every one of you. You guys can also follow me, Ray Russell. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter. You can find me there at Rassling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, facebook.com slash Rassling Grenade. And hey, while you're at it, why not subscribe to my YouTube, guys? It's absolutely free youtube.com slash wrestling grenade and of course now would be a fantastic time if you guys would consider becoming a wrestlecopia patron talking about that five dollar all access tier over at patreon.com slash wrestlecopia that address again patreon.com slash wrestlecopia multiple gifts for just five bucks including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for every episode of the grenade show Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. In fact, this episode of The Wrestling Stoop dropped five days early on Patreon. And the next episode, episode 12, going to drop an entire week early, seven days early. So how about that? The insanely detailed show notes, early access to the podcast, plus remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project includes enhanced sound quality plus new content and conversation never heard before, but that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, random bonus video drops, and of course our Patreon exclusive 
watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel any time. Show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer. And every penny of it goes right back here into the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you can, you got a few bucks to spare, looking to support that next up-and-coming podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. Help us pay some of the bills to keep all of the wonderful shows here at the network up and running for the months and the years to come. And all right, guys, with all of that out of the way, it's time to jump back into it one more time. And in order to do that, we're going to bring on the host of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Mr. Bob Roop. Well, thank you, Ray. It's just <laughs> good to be back on air with you, my friend. Oh, it's always great to uh, talk with you, Bob, because I know a history lesson's coming and a, a good time to be had as well. Well, I have all these stories that are just bubbling around in my uh, subconscious or somewhere in inner space and just uh, saying, hey, tell me next, please. Tell me <laughs> next. I've been waiting 40 years. Oh, so, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's good stuff. Well, hopefully we tell some good stories here this week for the listeners out there because we've got uh, quite a few names on tap here this week. And we're going to talk. People have been waiting for it with bated breath here for a few weeks. We've teased it a couple times now. This week, Bob Roop going to tell his time, his stories of hanging out with Chris Colt. But before we get there, Bob, you were telling me, and we didn't go into things, so I don't know any of the stories that are about to come up this way. But uh, you talked about meeting a, a young, uh, a early Dusty Rhodes in his career. The Texas Outlaws, Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes, arrive in the Florida Territory shortly before your very first Japan tour in the fall of 1970. And you said, you, you remember, you recall meeting a very early Dusty Rhodes. So I thought that would be a fun way to kick off the show this week and talk a little bit about a young Dusty, as, as you said, before he was Big Dust. Well, actually, maybe a, a different way of putting it would be there were two Dusty Rhodes. The one I met when he first came in with Dick Murdoch as tag team heels. Uh, he wasn't Dusty Rhodes, the later rendition. Uh, he didn't have any of the mannerisms, the talk, the way he talked, none of that. I, I think he introduced himself as Dusty. His real name is Virgil Ronald. Uh, he was different. He was down to earth. In later later years, Dusty was always on. He was doing Dusty Rhodes, the TV personality, uh, even in the dressing room. But back then, he was just another guy. He was quiet, really. Murdoch was, uh, was kind of the... Uh, Murdoch had a lot of seniority in terms of time in the business, so he was kind of the uh, the alpha member of the team. And but they were they were very very good. They they were coordinated in what they did. I remember their first match on TV. They got over like they only won a couple minutes and slaughtered a couple guys, and they got over uh, right away. They you could tell they were gonna uh, you know the fans watching just the. 50 people or whatever that were in the sportatorium got all buzzed, and, they, and the rest was watching, and the rest and went, wow, that's some good stuff we saw there. So, you know, I knew they were going to get over. Murdoch was by far the more noticeable. He did most of the talking. Uh, not that Dusty Rhodes or Virgil was uh, a shrinking violet, but he was actually, he was kind of quiet. I do remember a match, it was a, a boxing match where uh, Dusty was, uh, I don't know who he was boxing against. I should, because I was a second for uh, the babyface, and Dusty uh, Murdoch was the second for Dusty. But I just remember, and that's not the important part. The, the important part was that just one of these weird things, 
again, I'd only been in the business less, I think less than a year uh, or, or not longer, much longer than that. And so uh, a lot of this stuff is new to me. But anyway, they had this boxing match. And in the end, Dusty got knocked out. And I think in some way Murdoch Mur Mur tried to pass him a gimmick, a brass knucks or something. And I might have been partners with Briscoe maybe, and or I've been his second. And uh, whoever it was uh, got the knucks first and knocked Dusty out. And you Dusty couldn't, couldn't get up for the 10 count. So when he got counted out, Murdoch was had jumped in the ring, was in the corner. He was like again, like a second in a boxing match, and I he threw that he had a towel, uh, like a smaller hand towel, and he threw it up in the air from the corner, and it went up above and it opened up and it floated down and landed as neatly as if you had laid it on there, across Dusty's face, <laughs> at the top of his head. I think I could. I thought, man, how how. How the hell did he do that? You know, I said, I've heard about, you know, he talk about smooth moves. Only yeah. Dick Murdoch. <laughs> yeah, how the heck are you trained to get that to happen? Yeah, I think it was Jack, because later that night, we were coming back from uh, Orlando, and we pulled over on the side of the road, and they pulled over behind us, and they came and got in Jack's car. Uh, Jack and I were smoking pot at the time, and we were hiding it from those guys because, you know, they... It was really at that time. It was really frowned on, and Murdoch would have thought we were communists or something. You know, we were hippie, you hippie punks, and all that. If we, if he had known we were we were we were you know smoking, and cigarettes <laughs> was fine. But you know, you smoke that weed, oh, you're you know you're you're like you like most of us think about someone mainlining heroin. You know, you smoke a joint. But we're we're in the car, and and uh, Dusty tried to tried to do a little thing for one, but for some reason, he, I think he got out to take a leak or something. We were all drinking beer, and there was a little, like a road marker, a little like a iron post sticking up about 10 feet away, and uh, he went up like to give it a drop kick, and he, he didn't have it. He hadn't he fully laced his pants up yet, so while he's in, in midair, his pants came down, and when he landed, he landed in a bunch of stickers, like <laughs> at the side of the road. So he got up, he's pulling stickers out of his butt and, and and he got back in the, you know, he got back in the, uh, in the car. And so we're talking this and that. Now this is serious. <laughs> Again, let's go, remember back, remember back to the cafe, this is right. the that, cafe was... place in the country. You know, I mean, Eddie Graham was just absolute maniac about it. So, you know, the idea that we'd get caught or anything, especially you know, we had a joint in the ashtray of the car and, you know, for some reason. Well, anyway, so we're we're sitting back there talking. And that was the one I think that was a time when Dusty might have told a story about going home the night before. And he he went in and he had to go to the bathroom, but he'd been drinking heavily. He had to go to the bathroom. So um, he's sitting on the toilet and uh, all of a sudden he was overcome with nausea. So he jumped up, turned around and he threw up into the toilet. Well, when he did, the, you know, the contraction in his gut of, of throwing up, it made him, it made him discharge, his bowels discharge, and he sprayed, <laughs> he sprayed the whole wall on the other side of the bathroom. And his wife looked at him about that time. <laughs> yeah. His wife looked at him about that time and said, yeah, that's a wrestler. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sure of it. Oh, man. 
Well, I don't uh, know. I don't know if later <laughs> dust would ever told that story. Probably but, not. Uh, but in fact, I'm pretty sure that's why uh, the names may have been changed, Bob. If he told the story anyway. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, all of a sudden we're sitting there and having a great time and all that, and there's this knock, knock, knock on the window. Look up, and oh my God, it's a state trooper. Oh man. Oh man, my heart went through my head. I mean, out my ears. I just because it wasn't. I, I mean, it was the idea that. If we got busted, arrested together, years later, what if the Iron Sheik and Duggan and Jim Duggan got mm-hmm. caught together? You know, right, just yeah. terrible, terrible kind of news. You know, I mean, proper anti-propaganda for your business. And so there was that. There was also now at the time, pot in Florida was a felony. So and also it was a firing expense. Uh, I don't know. If, I'm pretty sure Graham wouldn't have fired Briscoe, but. He might have let me go. I don't know. He might have done. He might not have. Maybe he would have. I don't know. But he would have definitely come down hard on us. I tell you that. They've been watching us after that. Anyway, knock, knock on the uh, window. And, and uh, the cop just, you know, those seconds, I tell you, they slow down. It's where it seems like you see your whole life flashing before your eyes. And uh, it turned out the guy was just checking to see if we had, had were having car trouble. Uh, and he was nice enough. I don't know if he recognized us or not, but he was nice enough not to, uh, you know, we didn't have to get out of the car or anything, but oh man, as soon as he, as soon as he went back to his car, those guys hustled out of how the Jack's car got back in their car. We never did that again. You know, if we'd have been <laughs> caught together, oh my God. So, uh, that, let me think anything else about Dusty right back then. Oh yeah. Uh, they would go to the Imperial room after the the shows on Tuesday and Murdoch uh, <laughs> had a had a mean streak. Dick Murdoch had a you know he was good one of the great best workers that I ever saw. He was great hand, but he had a mean streak and he would he would lure uh, customers into the bathroom and then Dusty would go and block the doorway so nobody else could get in and Murdoch could beat the crap out of him. And uh, that he didn't do that every time because I don't know if they would have walked them them back. If they did, but I, I know if anybody gave him any grief whatsoever, uh, they'd better not go to the bathroom while Murdoch was, you know, because he'd watch for him to go in and he'd go in there after him. But and then Dusty, Dusty's job, and Dusty would complain about it because his job was kind of at being a stooge and blocking the blocking the doorway, not letting anybody else get in there to help the poor marker to break up the fight. It wasn't a fight; it was a massacre. Uh, it wasn't ever. <laughs> Uh, you know, Andre the Giant going in there that Murdoch went in there to kick. It was always some, you know, some, I mean, I'm not saying he was a bully. Uh, he probably would have taken on a guy's own size, but he never had to because there weren't many, many marks that big that were making trouble. So that was another thing I remember about him. And Dusty, Dusty didn't like that too much. To his credit, Virgil Ronald, he didn't like that part of it very much. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a gunster like that. And yeah, you know, I wasn't surprised when when their when their partnership when their tag team went off the rails. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. You know, we're gonna we're not gonna get deeper into it, but it it leads to some events that happened later, where I was talking to Dusty, and having known him before he became the Dusty Rhodes, the, you know, the character. When we were together alone one time in a parking lot in Louisiana. He wasn't sure how to, who to, he wasn't sure what persona to bring out, you know, Virgil or Dusty. 
And because him talking in the dressing room, he would be like the guy you see on TV. Like, you know, he would be, he'd be working. He'd be doing Dusty Rhodes, talking the talk and the slang and all that, which I thought was foolish. You know, you're talking to boys here. You know, we all know it's to work. You know, we know that that's not who you really are. Right. But, you know, that, you know okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But um, I never, I thought it was, I mean, I didn't spend any time worrying about it, but it, you know, it never appealed to me. And that probably another reason why Dusty didn't have much use for me because I didn't put him over. But I mean, I didn't think we needed to put each other over. I didn't put over Jack Briscoe when he was world champion or Terry Funk or Dory. I didn't go up to those guys and curry favor and, hey, oh, you're the best or any of that crap. <laughs> I mean, most of them I was friends with. I could write. I mean, I wrote with Harley for many times when he was champion, with Ric Flair when he was champion. And I never had to, you know, stooge for those guys. I never would. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think, but I think that's a conscious choice, but I never felt the need to. You know, this is a work. You're the champion. They made you the champion. You didn't beat anybody for real. You know, you were made the champion. My congratulations, but I don't want it. I don't want to be gone 330 days a year sleeping in hotels. You know, I don't care how much money it is. Uh, what a life. Oh, my God. I mean, every one of them had horrible home lives. You know, I mean, wives growing up. I mean, where I got divorced two or three times and one of his wives, I do, one of his wives, and overheard her saying, I love Rick Dearly, but I'm, I'm, I'm spending my life alone. You know, yeah. I'm not going to spend my life being alone, so I'm going to divorce him and, you know, go where I have someone to be home with me. And so, uh, yeah, there's a price you pay for everything. Anyway, you know the Dusty that I knew back then? That guy was a lot more fun and uh, likable because I, I think that's a lot closer to who he really was. Outside when the I did, business, you mean? Well, yeah, the, the, his real character before right. he before he became he got this persona. Right. Uh, I, I used to do interviews when I was working with him, and you know, his. I'm not sure if I knew that his father had been a ditch digger or I made it up. I don't remember, but I would say things like that about him, like just you know, this guy comes from a. And I was doing the superiority act. Now I'm middle class. I was middle class then, and it wouldn't matter how much money I have. I'm always going to be middle class in my values. But I, I made the, I made the, uh, you know, I was an Olympian. I was a college graduate, so I took advantage of that, and I'd made interviews saying, you know, I don't understand you people out there. You know, you appreciate the fact you come to the, the matches and watch the matches, and you know, you, uh, your money helps support me, and I appreciate that. And when you come to see me, of course, you're getting your money's worth. What I don't understand is why you support someone like Dusty Rhodes. You know. I'm a college graduate, uh, Olympian. Uh, in my life, I always had the best coaches. I had top-of-the-line coaches. I had, stu I had teachers I got at home. Uh, I had at-home teaching with some of the best teachers in the country. So I had, you know, you look at someone who's been, you know, it's refined. Someone who's been a gentleman who's refined, has been raised to have standards and value and all that. And yeah, yeah, here you got a guy that's the son of a dish digger. And you know, I, I wonder how much refinement he got growing up. Uh, and, you know, you can see it in his behavior, the way he behaves. You know, he's low class. And I don't know how you could support somebody like that when you have a chance to support someone like me. Well, you know, when I'm making that interview, of course, people out there are going, well, that's, uh, you know, about me, that filthy 
Because, you know, I was talking about them, too. You know, I mean. Because Dusty uh, was the common man. Yes, he was a common man, and I was making myself better than than him. And a lot of heels, even when I started, I never did. A lot of heels want to go out there, ah, oh, you people all suck, you know, you're stupid, and all this. <laughs> Insult the fans, which I thought was so stupid, you know. I mean, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to be insulted. You can't insult people and make them come to something. Right. Uh, unless it's your funeral. And so uh, I never did that. I would talk I would talk to fans like I liked them. I, I respected them. And, you know, I was, <laughs> here's why you should come and support me. Wouldn't you want your kids to be like me? You know, why would you want your, would you want your kids to be like Dusty Rose? My God, look at him. Oh, my goodness. You know, look at me. I'm an athlete. I'm in shape. You know, I'm, I'm educated, I'm refined, I'm genteel. I met presidents and princes and kings, and, and I was in perfect company every time. I was never feeling, like, you know, out of place. And why wouldn't you want to have your kids be someone like me as opposed to be somebody like Dusty Rhodes? Well, this kind of interview's got some serious heat. Uh, you know, people say, I would rather have my kid, you know, dead than be like you. So... Dusty, again, was uh, evolving. The, the, the Dusty that we ended up with was a character that evolved. That he took a long way. I mean, I'm giving him all the credit in the world. Guy made a fortune. He probably made 10 times more money than I did. And again, that wasn't my goal. My money wasn't my, my motive. But if it had been, I mean, it, him and all the guys that made a fortune, you know, I got all respect in the world for him. But going back to what I said 10 minutes ago, you paid a price for that. Like even Hulk Hogan, Hulk was working, he was making, he might have been making 10 million bucks a year, but he was afraid to miss work. You know, he was all over, He, I went into a hardware store one time, I was in one section, there were like five or six different things that had his picture on them, in one section. There might have been 20 things in the store that had his picture on them, he was getting paid for all that. So he was making a fortune. Right. Um, I did a show once for, for an uh, uh, Saudi Arabian prince, and uh, Hogan had the mansion two mansions down, and he had a, a one of those cigarette boats that was like thirty feet long, and a, I don't know five six hundred thousand dollar boat. But he didn't have time to he didn't even have time to enjoy it. He was afraid to miss work because he felt like if he did, he might lose his spot. Right. So you know he might lose his his momentum and his place. So you know it's like okay uh, that's a lot of money. I don't blame you. But, you know, he was having to go to work even when he had a bad knee, when his health was bad, he was hurting, and, you know, his family life was in disruption. So, again, uh, you get you make money, but you have to pay the price. And uh, I'm not at all unhappy. Again, I'm not trying to compare myself to anybody in a positive way. I'm just happy with the choices that I made because, you know, I'm well, I'm sitting here talking to you, Ray, and uh, hopefully the, some folks out there who joined us. but. Again, uh, uh, my, all my hats off to Dusty. What he did was very admirable. He cre I mean, his uh, business sense was very, very good. Uh, he he, made, he created a character, and uh, he he wrote it to the bank. You know, I mean, like a he, he took a, <laughs> he, he he took his own Brank's truck to the bank. Uh, you know, just to make. I was going to say he started off on a mule, but by the end, yeah, he was probably rock, rocking the Brinks himself. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah he. He reached he reached the heights, but you know there's another ingredient too, uh, fame. Uh, some people need an absolutely once they're famous, they absolutely it's like it's worse than heroin. I mean, they need it so bad 
And I always, I didn't like it much because it's, you, you have to give up your privacy. You know, you're famous. You can't go out to the 7-Eleven uh, without running a, a chance of, and as a heel, you run a chance of running into somebody who calls you, you know, you got your kid or with you, your or a friend or a neighbor or something, you know, some by the way, hey, I took my parents to a show in uh, uh, Land of Lake, not Land of Lakes, uh, Lakeland. For, my dad loved Kenny Rogers, and he was playing at the same arena out there that we, we wrestled in, the Civic Center, I think. And I took my folks. I forgot all about the wrestling. And so we're, we came to the matches late, and we were up in the in the balcony. And so I'm, we're going in. I'm looking for our seats. I forgot all about it. I was an idiot. So anybody out there, <laughs> any wrestlers out there who said, well, Bob said some things about me I don't like, I'm talking about my own idiocy here. So all of a sudden, here now here's my dad, mild minor college professor, my mother, not socialite. They were middle-class folks, you know, in terms of socioeconomic value, but both of them educated, nice people. Uh, they hadn't been around, never been to a wrestling match. But this is a country western concert. Sure. So we're... We, I got it, it around the corner from the aisle and was about halfway down, and there's a whole section. I'm right in front of about, oh, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 rows of seats that are maybe 20 seats wide before you get to the next aisle that you can go up, you know, the steps that you can go up and we'll look for our seats. I didn't get four, and my parents were right behind me. We, I didn't get 10 steps down there when I heard this roof. You son of a bitch, roof, you MFR, you. Oh, well, it was the same arena. Oh, my, yes. And my mother, my mother looked up and said, oh, my, because her name is Rupe also. You know, my sure, dad sure. looked up like it was just because for all he knew, they were talking to him. So, oh, God, I was so embarrassed. Oh, geez. So, yeah. Um, we're just coming to see the gambler play, you guys. Come on. Yeah. Well, again, I, I, that's what I say. Fame, uh, fame is overrated as far as I'm concerned. Privacy to me is invaluable. To be able to have your time, you can enjoy it uh, without having to. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you make yourself a public figure and people respond to that by coming up to you in public, you can't turn them down if you have any sense or class at all because you asked for it. But Dusty needed it. Hulk Hogan needed it. They wanted it. They needed it. They had to have it. Well, you you got to have it, you know, and. Uh, well, it's still cool it, to hear that, you know, Dusty was pretty down to earth and a fun guy. I'm I'm not even knocking him, you know, future Dusty Rhodes either, but just when he got there, it's it's cool to, you know, meet somebody, I guess, before they become the big shot, the, the big star, because, you know, you know, I knew you when you were just, you know, breaking in, so to speak. And, you know, you were a, just a down to earth guy. Not as much politics, obviously, at that point for Dusty to deal with and things. So pretty cool deal that you guys hung out a little bit, had some fun there. Uh, in the early yeah. going of the Texas Outlaws, and it's also cool to know that the minute they, you know, they hit the scene, the minute they burst onto the TV, that they were getting over, they were doing their thing. So very cool deal. Oh yeah, they got over. They were very believable, and Murdoch was, was always was always one of the best workers in the business. Agreed. So uh, you know, I mean, he could get over against uh, anybody. Um, he could wrestle anybody. <laughs> so he know. just had that had that way about him, but um. Very cool. Uh, our very first real Dusty Rhodes story here on the show, and I'm sure there's like a, a thousand more to come, guys. So stay tuned as we continue to talk about the progress of the American dream over the years of the 1970s and the 1980s. But, uh, Bob, we teased this a few weeks back. You talked about staying with Chris Colt for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months or whatever it was. Uh, you guys were working the same territory before you took the book. Was it Sam? I don't remember where that was. 
Yeah, it was San Francisco. Okay, so guys, I just want to brief you really quickly just a little bit about the history of Chris Colt, who worked predominantly in tag team wrestling. He worked in the chain gang as Jim Dillinger, teamed up with Ken Russell as Ken, Ken Dillinger, also Jack Dillinger, who was Don Fargo, but by far his most famous tag team with, was with a fellow by the name of Ron Dupree, and they first formed the California Hells Angels, later just the Hells Angels. Bob, you may guess that eventually that biker group caught up with them and uh, gave them an idea that maybe maybe change your tag team name, which they did, to the Comancheros later on. So uh, unfortunately, Dupree passes away, I think in 76, and Chris Colt's kind of on his own after that and doing this really crazy shtick. Chris Colt, though, takes the name Colt actually from a gay pornography company, Colt Studios. So he was fairly open, I think, to some degree anyway. You had experiences with him, and you talked just a little bit about it before, so I wanted you to kind of share your experience with uh, the listeners out there, the Chris Colt experience. Well, um, when I went, first got to California, on my first day in there at the TV studio, I went into the, uh, the lounge to get a, I don't know, a soda or something, and uh, the, the, he was sitting in there, and I, I didn't know him. I didn't, I'd never even seen a picture of him. And he wasn't real big, you know, he, he probably weighed 200 pounds and he had long hair and a beard and a mustache and beard. And, you know, he looked like a, a, a typical a hippie. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. So anyway, uh, he spoke, you know, I was, he just, he said, hi. And, you know, I said, hey, how you doing? And all that. And uh, he, he realized I didn't know him. So, you know, he introduced himself and that he was one of the boys and, so, you know, he was friendly, and, uh, you know, I didn't know anybody out there. And, you know, that we already talked about the kind of reception I got from Pat Patterson and any of his buddies in um, terms of, of feeling welcome. Well, Chris was made me feel welcome. Like, he, you know, he, he liked me. or I mean, he didn't hate me, let's put it that way. And so, uh, you know, I, who, who are you going to gravitate to? You know, Pat Patterson wouldn't... <laughs> you know, wouldn't invite me to his house because he planned to burn it down with me in it. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, and so there wasn't anybody else on the card that I knew very well. I'd met a couple of the guys like uh, Jimmy Valiant. I'd never met Johnny, but, uh, you know, Chris was getting, it was friendly and he was, you know, he was footloose. He was, he wasn't, he had a place in downtown San Francisco so anyway, we ended up, uh, he said, you know, we had, had a, we had a night off maybe the weekend after that or next or the one after that. You know, he, he asked me, he said, well, you know, if you want to go out, he said, I can show you around the city a little bit. So I think I already talked about, uh, I asked him, in fact, I know I did. I, I asked him, well, let's find a place, you know, we drove around a little bit. I said, let's find a, no, I'll tell you what we did. We stopped and got some magic mushrooms. Uh, that sounds he, like Chris I, Colt. <laughs> well, I didn't know anything about him, but he, he said, uh, you ought to try this. I said, well, what's, what's it like? And I was reading some stuff at the time. There was uh, a writer who wrote about this uh, Indian Don Quixote that uh, did these uh, trips on peyote and did okay. their mind expansion. And then K. Helga Brown had some philosophy. It was also the same thing about expanding your, you know, your intellect and your uh, like, I mean, even the area of like uh, ESP or traveling through space and, you know, in your mind. And so I was interested in that kind of thing. And so when when it wasn't just to get high, uh, when oh, I, I want to get high because, you know, I can, you can go out and 
you know, chug a half pint of rum and you're, you're high pretty quick. You know, I, so again, I, I said, this is okay to drive on. I had never had any. So uh, anyway, uh, then we went to, I asked him about finding a place for both of us, or I mean, for us to go. He said, well, and that's when he told me he was gay. So I said, well, let's find a place for both of us. And he took me to the place where there was just the only female in the place was a singer. She wouldn't have anything to do with uh, anybody but the guys that were backing her up on, you know, in the in the band. Right. And you know, it was it was again. Now I'm I'm not out high trying to have a great time. Uh, I mean, that's part of it. But I'm also I'm I'm out there. I'm learning things. I'd never been in a gay bar before, but you know, where it was all. I mean, everybody in there. Uh, well, maybe not everybody, but majority probably 95 percent of the people and they're gay i've never been in that in that situation so the idea of being able to go in there with chris which made it safe for me in the sense that i not that anybody was gonna beat me up or anything like that but where i could be more comfortable you know as opposed to walking into a gay bar as a straight man which uh, apparently people can tell you know to walk so yeah, that made it that made it a lot easier, and you know we had a good time. You know, I mean, it was, to me, it was, but it was interesting as heck to me. I, you know, I was watching what was going on. It, this bar wasn't anything outrageous. Now later on with Chris, we went to some places where uh, the guys on the dance floor were uh, simulating uh, very close to simulating sexual acts. Now they were clothed, but most of them it was hot in there, and they were sweating a lot. Most of them had their shirts off. But there were there was a thing they had amyl nitrate. Uh, the dentist uh, give it to you when you you're getting uh, your teeth worked on, to where you kind of go out in la la land and takes the kind of the tension of getting your you know like a root canal or something or teeth pulled. It, it, it makes it much easier for you emotionally and psychologically, and but it makes you high. And a lot of the guys had amyl nitrate poppers, and when they did, they would take a big uh, snort and uh, and then they get this rush of like exhilaration of you know of just being uh, what I'm saying it created some serious seriously outrageous behavior sure and the one th- the one time I remember the most was walking into uh, one of those scenes that I'm telling you it was like something out of uh, you know a back an hour you know some movie about just this <laughs> horrible you know all this horrible practice going on. And I just, for some reason, had a picture of my dad, the mild-managed engineering professor from Michigan State, looking down at me. I mean, he was still alive, but I just had an <laughs> idea of him for, in some way being able to see me there. And now Chris, I was, uh, Chris had a couple of girls that would come and stay with him. They were like glitter queens, and they would stay with him at his apartment when they were in town. And we went, when we went to these places, these two girls went along, uh, although Chris didn't make any make it look like he was like dating one of them, but the four of us would go together. So I had plenty of cover, you know. I had I had a couple girls there that uh, you know to keep me company and also to keep anybody from from uh, I don't I don't want to say anybody would hit on me, but maybe just as a rib. Yeah, Chris was uh, he loved. There was a song that came out that time. Uh, Ringo Starr I heard it from Ringo Starr first. It was called. With a little help from my friends, and Joe Cocker sang it, and man, was it beautiful! I listened to it just the other day again, just to remind me. 
And uh, and Chris loved Joe Cocker. He just Joe was uh, Joe Cocker was an English singer. He was gay, and Chris just adored him. I mean, he looked a lot like him. He had his hair and everything, clothing. Uh, he just uh, you know he just really adored the guy. And uh, the thing about Chris is that he was interesting. You know, he had these stories to tell. Now he went to places. There were places in San Francisco. Now again, the gay capital of the world. I mean, I don't know of any place in Europe or anything that matches or I haven't ever read in all the reading I've done over my lifetime of any place in the world that is known for gay culture like San Francisco. So uh, there we are in the gay center of the, of the, again, of the universe, and I'm getting, a, I'm getting a crash course in something that's interesting to me to help, uh, help my attitudes to where I have more understanding and, and you know, a lot of uh, prejudice is created by ignorance. And when you don't know about things, I've said this before, but I'll repeat it. Things that you're not, you don't know about and you're, you know, you're not sure of, you know, they're, they're scary to you sometimes. I don't want to go into situations where I don't know why I don't, you know, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what's going on. And, and, and to some people who don't feel prepared to deal with it, it's scary. It's frightening. And people hate things that scare them. So prejudice, you know, the idea that, that, uh, you know, a gay person is going to come up and grab you and force you to have sex with them. It's just preposterous. You know, I mean, it's just not, I mean, I'm not saying it's never happened, but it's not like, I mean, as far as uh, attacks like rapes from straight men, 500 to one in, in terms of numbers, numbers of doing it. So, you know, that wasn't something I needed to worry about. But again, it was a way to, to get an education. And Chris was a uh, was a perfect way to do it. And I'll give you an example. We were playing pool at a bar, and a uh, guy came up and put a quarter on the bar. Like if you, if uh, you, they could, that means that you, they got the next game or whatever. And this guy was a pretty big guy. He was a little taller than me. Probably weighed about two thirty. He wasn't. He was straight. And he, he said something to Chris. You know, like he, I don't know. Maybe he walked when he went by me, elbowed him or something. Chris said, "Hey." Mepper. He said, I might be gay, but I'll kick your ass. And I got around, looked at him, and took off, off he went. Well, I respected that. You know, I mean, you know, I, what, he didn't say, uh, me and Bob will kick your ass. He said, I'll kick your ass. Right. And I, I you know, I thought, you know, well, this, he said, you know, this guy's laid back as he can be. You know, he's not a big mouth. He's not out there causing trouble. He's looking have a good time. But yeah, you, he wasn't going to uh, take any crap either. So you know, I respected him. You know, I mean, I I, I knew other wrestlers that that wouldn't have been that aggressive. Sure, right. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I was listening to you tell that that peyote part of the story. I don't know if you've heard the story about Chris tripping out on that in a wrestling ring. No, uh, goes back to I think it was 1975 in Phoenix. He comes out for a cage match and he's tripping uh -huh. big time oh, uh, on this stuff. And the story goes that he envisioned spiders crawling all over the cage. And so he goes crazy. He actually gets out of the cage and starts fighting the fans and security. and has to be like taken out of the arena from, from oh doing that. God. Yeah. So a uh, crazy story there that's out there, but um, Oh my God, yeah, that was just Pork. one of like a zillion Chris Colt stories. But can you imagine that? Oh, just not a good time for that to happen. No, no, he would have been much better off with the mushrooms. You know, <laughs> they, they never made you see things like that. At least the ones I ate <laughs> never did. Uh, but uh, I'm not surprised, though. Chris was, uh, you know, he was a character. 
and it was not he's not trying to be you know Dusty, and not knocking Dusty, but the Dusty Rose character that he assumed is sure. a character that he assumed a role. Chris was a character, just <laughs> his normal behavior, right? Was a, a distinct character because he wasn't you know, he was out there, you know he wasn't like everybody else. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't like other gay people, and uh, you know, not to knock anybody. But what a blessing Chris had. Here he is a pro wrestler who's on TV, and he's gay, and he's in the gay center of the world. So he's famous. You know, I mean, he can go in bars and places where he's, maybe he's on TV. As he walks in, the TV's playing up or behind the bar, right. and there he is. So, you know, he had, uh, you know, not, that made him uh, highly desirable for, you know, to be a date for, for someone, for, you know, another gay uh, a gay person who wanted to, you know, be, you know, just to know that he was with somebody famous. But Chris would go to these places. They had a thing called, I think they were called the Baths. Uh, and some of the stories he told, I mean, uh, you know, I've, I'm well read and I've read a lot of stuff and I've read some of the most, not for, you know, not to get turned on, but just strictly out of curiosity. I've read some really sicko type literature and stuff that's out there. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, it's in libraries. You can find it. But I've, I've read a lot about a lot of very deviant behavior. But some of the stuff that Chris talks about, some of the stuff that went on in, these, uh, in the baths, I mean, you could walk in a room, there'd be a guy in there, and you didn't even have to say hello, and you could start having, you know, relations with him. And, you know, he would tell these stories. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there now. I would not have had the huspa to, to, to go in the bar that place myself. Now. He did get me. Uh, he put one of the greatest ribs I ever had pulled against me. Uh, he said, "Let's go down and work out. At, uh, meet me down at the YMCA. We'll work out." Why do you think about it? You know, YMCA is. Sorry, YMCA. I'm not, my, in fact, my my health club here in uh, in Lansing, Michigan, is the Y is the East Coast East Side YMCA. But in a lot of cities, the YMCA was reputed. I'm not saying it was, but it was reputed to be like. Uh, have a lot of gays there because they're like, you know, young men. Uh, it was a place where there was a lot of gay activity going on. And then a lot where a lot of the uh, activity, the physical activity took place was in the steam baths and in the, in the saunas. So if we went, went there and we weren't in a sauna bath, I'm actually sitting dead center. And uh, Chris and I, after we worked out, we lifted some weights. And then uh, I mean, he set me up perfect. I never had a, a clue. We worked out about an hour. Uh, we went in the, in, the, in the steam bath, and, you know, I had a towel. So we sat there for, I don't know, five, six minutes. And he said, I am going to go get a drink. Uh, he said, uh, save my place. He said, I'll be, there was nobody else in there. Uh, and it was, a long, it was a long steam bath. It was about the, oh, 15 feet long, about 10 feet wide. And uh, so we were sitting facing the door about 12, 15 feet away from the door. So Chris goes out, and I'm sitting in there, and, you know, a couple, you know, three seconds or so go by, and the door opens up, and here comes this guy. Uh, he has to bend down. The, the door is about seven feet high, and he has to bend down to make sure he doesn't hit his head on it. The guy had to be 6'10". And uh, he probably weighed uh, 250, 260, big muscular guy. But that wasn't all that was big, and he was naked, <laughs> and he was... Uh, semi-aroused, I guess you might say, and he, he came walking up to me. Now, 
the last place I wanted to look was anywhere below his like neckline because I, I I said, well, if I would be looking at his drunk, maybe he's going to think I'm interested. So I'm looking at the guy and he's got this big smile on his face. Well, he's walking up towards me. I'm thinking, okay, where's he going to sit? You know, there's plenty of room on both sides. I hope he's not planning them want to sit right next to me. I'll have to tell him, that, you know, Christian. No, he stops right in front of me. And <laughs> I'm still looking him in the eye because I don't want to, if I look down, I'm going to look at junk. So about a foot and a half away. And so he's looking, he's got his, he puts his hands on his hips. He wiggles his hips a little bit. And he's looking down at me. And I, I just said, uh, uh, I'm not sure what you're after, but you're in the wrong place. And so <laughs> off he goes. I thought, man, is that weird, you know? Wow. And so about 20 seconds after he leaves, the door opens again, and in walks a guy that's about four feet tall. He's a, a little person, but he's about 220 pounds. He's about four feet tall. A, a four big feet little tall. person. <laughs> yeah, and four four feet wide. And he's also got a a, a very prominent a, a junk hanging, hanging there. And he also comes waddling up to me. and stops in front of me and wiggles his hips a little bit and grins and winks. And I, I said, well, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, how are you doing? And so I said, well, really, uh, no thank you, whatever, what have you got on your mind? So off he goes, and when he, as soon as he let the, went out the door, I'm up like a shot. I'm going to go find Chris, right. you know, because I have, I have no clue what's going on. And, uh, <laughs> As I open the door and look out, I'm looking for Chris. Right about 10 feet away, Chris has got the next person in the group, uh, which is, <laughs> a guy, is a guy about seven feet wide and, and, and uh, six feet tall, also humongous in, in, uh, in his private region. He's coaching him on what he's supposed to do. And as soon as I saw him, I, I couldn't help it. I started laughing. And uh, I mean, it was funny, you know. And, uh, um, what a rib! I mean, I, I, these guys come stalk. These guys come stalking up to me. I'm, again, being a wrestler and being able to defend myself, I never, I never worried. As long as I could see a guy, you know, approaching, I, you know, and, you know, I felt safe uh, in my own skin. Let's put it that way. Right. So when when I saw uh, I saw Chris was coaching, when he saw me, he said, "Ah, damn it!" I'm hoping to get you. He had two more lined up. And so, uh, you know, all those guys, all those guys came in. They all had a towel when they came in, and they, we laughed. Uh, he says, well, both those guys, the first two guys, said, man, you should have seen the look on your face. He said, you know, you, he said, you almost, he said, you almost turned me on. He said, your jaw was hanging down about a foot. He said, you had your mouth open. I said, oh, my God. So, well, that says, you know, that says a lot about you back even then, Bob, though. I mean, like. Chris knew how you would take this. He knew it was a rib at the end of the day, and he knew you were going to get hostile or anything over this. So he knew you were cool with the whole situation. And that is a harmless rib at the end of the day, and I find it hilarious myself. It so is. I can it's see hilarious. how you came out laughing and once you yeah. saw what the hell was going on. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's funny stuff. I love it. I, mean, I don't know if you could really top that this week on this show, man. That's, that's really good stuff, man. I love it. Well, think about a guy that's nice enough, that likes you enough, the rib you like that in a way that's, that's funny. He knew he knew I'd laugh. He knew I'd find it funny. But he also knew the reason I'd find it funny because I'd be startled. I'd be startled about to, on a ten scale. I'd be startled up to about twelve 
by while while it was going on because I wasn't expecting it, of course. We didn't see anybody like that while we were working out. Right. You know, there wasn't anybody <laughs> strutting around in the, in the gym. Right. So, you know, he's, and plus the guys are so physically different and not just different, but extreme. One guy is a great, big, massive, tall guy. The next guy, shorter, you know, much shorter. And, and it sounds like uh, he had this rib planned out. Like he kind of, there's no way all these guys just happen to be oh, there. Just happen to whatever, whatever the oh. case may be. I, it's like he set you up. So he went to the levels, like he considered you that good of a, a friend, an acquaintance, whatever you want to call it, that yeah. he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little time to get this rib together. It wasn't just something, uh, you know, off the cuff. He was like, eh, huh, all right, I'll get him in the sauna, and then uh, we'll we'll go to work <laughs> on the joke. Uh, yeah, a little backstory. Before I b- became Booker, when Chris and I went out, I would stay with him. I, he had an apartment, like I said, in in downtown San Francisco, and especially once the girls came down, they. They'd been up in Oregon or someplace. I can't remember where, Washington maybe. But uh, when they were back in town, they were staying there too. So, you know, we'd go out on the town and we'd come back to his place and, you know, maybe smoke or, you know, have a, another beer or two and, you know, just wind down and I'd spend the night there. And because it was, again, as opposed to going home to an apartment by myself, this was interesting, you know? I mean, I had the so, you know, I had a social life that was so unusual you know, because of the, the makeup, the girls were bisexual, you know, and so, uh, and that also was interesting to me. So, um, you know, we went to a lot of places, we went to parties and all kinds of things where it was just interesting because I got to meet all kinds of different people, you know, transsexuals and and and, and understand and, and be able to appreciate uh, people's choices or sometimes you don't have a choice. That's what you are. And that's what, but to be able to express it, because in my era, I mean, you couldn't, I mean, nobody come out of the closet. Right. You know, I mean, uh, it was, oh, you're gay. My God, you might as well be, you know, more, like you're worse than being a communist or something, you know? And I, I always appreciated Chris for that because he gave me a great education. And that was one of the sad things about uh, becoming a booker because I couldn't hang around with him anymore. Uh, but the, the month or so that I did was quite a good time. He was, he was a lot, he, you know what? He was a lot of fun. There's people you're around, they're fun. You have fun with them. And, uh, you know, it's a good time. It's interesting too. Uh, we, he wasn't boring. Let's put it that way. Sure. It doesn't uh, sound like it. Sounds good. <laughs> Somebody yeah. you want to hang out with you, you want to have a good time. That's right. Unless, unless you're in a cage match and they're tripping on cactus. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know, that story doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, he probably thought he could handle it. But, you know, he's not the first one. We'll get down, down the road. Right. I got to research and find out the name of the guy. There was a guy that was in Florida that was taking, uh, he was taking downers, and he was, there was one that was liquid that you, was, you took, and it was, it was uh, in a, uh, like a plastic capsule that, dissolved in your stomach i think it was to relax you at night to go to sleep i can't think of the name of it but i'll, I'll find it but he would t- he would take one of these he'd cut he'd cut the end off it and he would uh he would shut he would take the liquid inside and he he put it in his mouth and swallow it on his way to the ring for his match so about five minutes into the match all of a sudden this thing would hit and he got all goofy and you know like uh, this was a pretty powerful narcotic so yeah he was weird and well we kept wondering i was <laughs> I, I, I was one, uh, helping with the office. I kept wondering how he was. We couldn't figure out how he was doing it because he wasn't doing it in the ring. And then finally, at one show, I found one of the capsules in, a, in the wastebasket in the bathroom. 
with the end cut off, and I realized how he was doing it. Yeah, you'll have so, to do uh, some research and uh, figure out who that was. Very curious. Very interesting stuff. <laughs> well, he got in a car wreck, and I think it was from driving. He was in a wheelchair for a while. I should be able to find him. He wasn't a big name. Okay. Uh, but he was, you know, that, that, that unusual character in the business, so, sir. That well, kind of rub. I greatly appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners greatly appreciate your personal stories that nobody else can share that you had with Chris Colt. I'm I'm so happy those are out there now. I mean, it really just adds to the Chris Colt experience. Um, you know, of course, a lot of people are probably asking, well, whatever happened to Chris Colt? And, you know, I did a little digging and I kind of knew some of this anyway. But um, sadly, you know, Chris going to finish up his career in 1986, finishing out in the Pacific Northwest up there in Portland working for Don Owen. But once his wrestling career was over, Chris, you know, obviously we've talked about it openly gay. He went on to star in a few gay porn movies, Bob, including Jack Husky's first night at Chris Colt's quote-unquote wrestling academy. Uh, he was rumored to have been also a born-again Christian. I can't confirm that. However, sadly, Colt, the real name, last name Harris, died from AIDS in May of 1995 at the age of 48 in a homeless shelter. That's just a sad way to go when you talk about what a great guy or what a fun guy he was. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the the AIDS, uh, of course, is, you know, if you're going to you're going to dance, you're going to have to pay the piper, you know, one day. Right. But, you know, I don't think I I doubt very seriously if Chris was uh, at, at the last was going all oh, poor, poor, pitiful me. Uh, he lived. I think he feel, he lived the life he wanted to live. Right. And, you know, being able to be in San again, being able to be in San Francisco, be on TV as a wrestler, you know, where you're 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 famous. And you could have your pick. You go on these places where, you know, there's people desperate to be with anybody and you're famous. You could have whoever you wanted. Uh, he chose to live his life the way he wanted to. And he ended up uh, dead at a very early age, 32 years old. I'm 32 years older or 33 than that right now. So to die that young, you know, is really a shame. Uh, but, you know, it's what you do in life. Most of the times you have to pay for it. But again, I don't think Chris would, would feel sorry for himself. I think there's a lot more people talking about him than some of the more famous wrestlers who, you know, you know, were famous for their success in pro wrestling, not for their, their escapades or their adventures in life. Chris had a very interesting life. And again, people want to say, oh, yeah, but that's deviant. No, it's not. Uh, there are gay people and there are straight people and there's people that are both. And everybody, you know, uh, in this country especially, we're supposedly all created equal. We're, I don't want to get into it because it's just it's so sickeningly sad. But I mean, at one time, not long ago, just over religion, not over gay and straight, over religion. In Northern Ireland, they were, people were shooting each other. Uh, not, not different races, but just, just religion. Protestants right. and Catholics were shooting each other. People would break into somebody's house where they're having dinner and shoot the head of the family, the man, right in front of his wife and kids to kill them over religion. That went on for years. And, you know, you talk about how horrible is that? And again, both of them are saying, well, the reason we're killing, we're killing for God, because we believe in God, but we believe in the God this way. And those other people, they believe in God their way, which is, uh, that's sacrilegious. They're, they're heretics, so we, they have to go. And, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. 
And now what I just said is, is ridiculous, right? I mean, it's, it's true. Sure. But to have that attitude is ridiculous uh, in a day where you have the right, you have all the, you have all these public libraries. You don't even have to go to the library. If you've got a phone and you've got an internet hookup, you can read thousands of books for free. And you can find out everything you want to know about any subject out there. And well, Bob, as I've learned in regards to this podcast, there are some people that don't want to learn because then you you sh shatter their their beliefs that for the last you know however many decades and things. So I, I posted that last San Francisco show where you explained the entire fallout with Roy Shire, and one minute after it was posted, a guy already called you a liar. I said you didn't even have time to listen to the intro. So how do you know that he lied? You know it's. Uh, these people, they just, there's people out there that don't want to be educated, I think, in some degree. You know, there's always going to be those people. Clearly, you were uh, early on, you were willing to learn and, and be open. And thus, you, these great stories come to us here on the show. I know there's going to be people that don't want to hear what I've got to say because a lot of times it's not just what they believe, it's that that belief all is heavily involved with their personal identity, how they see themselves is believing some of these things. And if anybody that comes along and rocks the foundation of their basic beliefs, whether they're, they don't want you, like you say, they don't want to know something that rocks that belief because that makes it, that makes about half the behavior that they've done in their whole life. It makes it faulty or incorrect. It wasn't, you know, it could have been better. Uh, maybe they spent their life being racist and thinking it was okay to be that way because the, whatever they're, their uh, prejudice against deserve to be uh, looked down upon, and you, they don't want to find out that no, they're not. They don't deserve to be looked down upon. No, they don't want. They don't want to know that. Now, to, my philosophy is, and if it make anybody feel better, my philosophy is that you know, life is a learning experience, and you can you know, the last thing you learn is what it feels like to die, uh, and we don't know if that's the end or not. Some people believe that we live forever. We'll find out, but it's a learning experience. You don't have to stop learning when you get to a certain age. Not a lot of people do that, but you can learn every day. And I'm still reading, and I'm trying to keep my mind active, so I don't want Alzheimer's. I don't want to shut down, and uh, if, you, if you don't use something, you lose it. But I, I don't want to have my personal identity wrapped up in something that's ugly and hateful and nasty because that you know, not just reflects on me, but reflects on my parents, the way I was raised, my family tree, my family background, and it also reflects on what my children uh, are very likely, what kind of character they have. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, and I'm not, and I, but I'm no worse either. Uh, but I am trying to better myself in my own mind and, and uh, by doing the best I can to become, to stay educated. And you still learn new things. I know you think you know everything about something. <laughs> no, one of the things, one of the one of the one of the downfalls of, of education is as you learn more, you realize you find out there's so much more than you were aware of that you don't know, and that's kind of a um, a, a byproduct that's not that not that welcome. But you know, uh, I'd rather have that than just continue to be ignorant about something and shortchanging myself and the, the people I love. Well, they say you learn something new every day. And if you don't, then you're doing something wrong because there's always more to learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean? So, 
Yeah. But uh, no, it was great. I love it, man. Uh, we're two for two here. Dusty Rhodes and Chris Colt. And we're just an hour into the show, which means we've got some time left, Bob. So if it's all right with you, we'll go back to <laughs> 1970 and try to close out some of that as we prepare for your first tour of Japan. Okay. Sounds great. So last episode, we covered uh, quite a few different names. We jumped around a little bit from Ivan Putsky to Bobby Heenan, which was really cool. But this time, I wanted to go back to the early part of 1970 again, January through March. On and off, you were working the trio uh, in any way, shape, or form, sometimes six-man tags, sometimes tag teams, sometimes one-on-one. But I'm talking about Duke Kiyomuka, Hiro Matsuda, and Mr. Saito. We've talked about all three of those guys in the past here, so we won't spend a super long time on them here on this show, but I wanted to talk about it because you worked them here for quite a few months. And I assume it was kind of a U.S. Olympian versus quote-unquote evil Japanese angle they were coming from there. But um, you were talking to me off-air a couple of days ago about Matsuda and Kiyomuka having points in the territory, but that all started because I asked you about Cowboy Luttrell and being the original promoter here in the territory and Eddie Graham kind of buying in and eventually taking over Luttrell's points. So I wanted you to go back, if you could, and kind of explain to everybody uh, what Cowboy Luttrell's booking or his uh, his way of booking was and how Eddie Graham came in and kind of changed that. Okay. Uh, Cowboy Luttrell, now he was a character. He uh, he worked the at show, uh, the athletic show on the carnival. Uh, in fact, he had a fight with Jack Dempsey. And uh, he got, oh, Jack Dempsey not only knocked him out, he hurt him. He hit him, broke his jaw or something. He hurt him really bad. But he, you know, he, he fought Jack Dempsey, who was one of the heavy, you know, one of the really, really tough heavyweight champion, boxing champions. But um, he ran, the show he ran in Florida, uh, as you alluded to earlier, he didn't have television. Uh, and because and he didn't, he, he didn't run year round. He didn't run during the hot weather. Uh, he would run in the winter when tourists came down from the north. He ran a show that was like it would what you would see on the carney. He would have uh, the big guys. I don't want to say fat, but the you know Haystack, Calhoun, Man Mountain Mike, the big guys, Condike uh, Bill. He would have and he would have uh, lady wrestlers, and he would also have uh, little people. Uh, maybe the bear. Maybe uh, you know they were they were like uh, it was more exhibition. Like a carney, you have all these shows that, you know, the, in a, inside the tent is, you know, the, the, the amazing man from Borneo, he'll eat a chicken right in front of you. Uh, you just have to pay to go on and see him. So it's like an ex, they're like exhibitions rather than they're going to perform and do something that right. uh, is going to, you know, you know, enthrall you. So, um, and that was kind of Cowboy's M.O., well, when Eddie got involved, and I don't, I'm sure exactly, I don't know the history of how exactly how I got involved, but when he did start running it, uh, I think it was from reading Hero's book provided by his lovely daughter, that um, uh, he was, uh, he and Duke Kiyomuka both were top heels. And when Eddie Graham was, um, was trying to get the territory off the ground, he got the television. Uh, he, he used, he had Duke, uh, Duke Kiyomuka especially was a really, really good heel. He was top, top guy for years, a hero luster. So was still, you know, top guy. He had them. And I, my understanding is they got points because they could stay there. And, uh, you know, they had like maybe five points each, I'd say a hundred points. 
we'll we use points instead of like shares of stock, but they would have like 5% of 100% of the business. They would right. have 5%. And that way they had an income, even if they, you know, went out and wrestled somewhere else. But they, that you know, they got that from coming in there and taking, a, they might have, in fact, invested, even invested money. They might have come in and put down, I don't know, 10 grand each back when that would be 100 grand a day or maybe 200 grand a day in spending power. But they put down money to help Eddie get it off the ground. Maybe they, they bought in. But they got 5% of, of, at the time, before it, it, it made it, you know, they were getting 5% of nothing until you got it off the ground. I'm not sure that Cowboy drew enough with his uh, his kind of more exhibitionist type, you know, to support uh, like a bunch of wrestlers and their families. Uh, so Eddie was going to have to expand it quite a bit, which he did. Uh, and just an aside, one of the guys he did it with was Boris Malenko. Uh, he and Malenko had... I don't know, a year, I think, years of of combat back and forth oh, yeah. and had, right. these, had these great matches. But um, anyway, back to Matsuda and, and, uh, and Kiyomuka. Mm -hmm. When I was when I started there, they weren't working a, a lot. They were working some. Here I worked with here a bunch of times. I'm not sure they were booked every night. Now, they might have been. But I don't remember ever seeing Duke work in Tampa. Now, maybe he did, and maybe I just forgot. But... Um, they were they were both at the office. Every time I was there during the day, they were there. And I don't know if what their jobs were. Duke had a, a set up a connection to Japan, and Hiro did himself later. Uh, both of them had connections with wrestling companies in Japan to set up tours for wrestlers from Florida, championship wrestling from Florida, through Florida could go to Japan, and that would that would help them. You know, they kind of owe. Uh, championship wrestling for Florida, a favor for getting them booked over there. And then the Japanese uh, would owe them a favor, too, for sending the guys over there. What The reason I feel like uh, I was booked with them was that both the guys were, you know, old, experienced hands. They could work with anybody, and they could make me look good. With Hero, I remember the first few times I worked with him. I remember, I remember in Miami. Now, Miami was a major market. They didn't want to beat Hero there. So we went 20 minutes. We had a 20-minute time limit, and we just went 20 minutes to a draw. Uh, that's the one I was telling about, where 20 minutes seemed like you know five years. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to get through a match that long, but I think <laughs> I beat him in. I think I beat him in Tampa when we wrestled there. But I was beating. So I had no idea at the time because I didn't know their background. But I was beating guys that had been major movers there. They had been guys that, and there was there wasn't. It was like Hero was still in his prime. And Duke still, you know, didn't look much different probably than when he wrestled. Uh, his, his, it wasn't what he looked like. It was just, he had a very uh, expressive face of being like this nasty little Japanese uh, Tojo type nasty person, right? And uh, uh, sneaky and all that the Japanese stereotype stuff. Yeah, and he was real good at it. And I think by letting me having me beat him, I think the, the working in the ring with him, they could kind of lead me and give me an idea how to work. And then by having me look good against them, which they did, or beat them, uh, that was building me. Because I'm trying to think how I got to be uh, able to go against Johnny Valentine, you know, that early in my career. Uh, I mean, it was several years later, but uh, I had to be beating somebody. Now, I talked again uh, last time about having people like Larry Henning come, be coming through this coming down there for a couple of weeks in the winter and getting a couple of bookings. 
and they would book book me with people like that and and put me over low type guys you know you go into jacksonville and the main special match against somebody like larry hannah and you beat him well you know that that that's a big help for pushing your career so they were trying to get me over eddie knew that i was loyal that you know i would be loyal to him you know so they i think that if he felt like he got me over they would have a couple of really good things one would be someone who could draw and make money for him and also someone who was a shooter who could you know take on you know anybody who's smart aleck or whatever be a shooter behind the scenes for him now a couple things happened that soured me on that and and you know uh, that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt is absolutely true but when i first the first time when i came down to tampa the first time uh, in 1969, we drove into Tampa and got a motel. It was the same night as that Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, and I saw it on TV. Well, that night on Friday night, we got into town about oh, 4:30, so the wrestling office was going to be closing at five. Uh, it, it, for, for guys that wrestled, they, the towns that night were Tallahassee and Fort Lauderdale, so the wrestlers were long gone. So they were, you know, on their way to those towns. So there was no need for Charlie Lay or anybody else to be there after five o'clock. So when I called the office at 4.30, uh, this guy answered the phone and uh, it sounded like somebody holding their nose and, and it sounded like Eddie Graham, but not not exactly. And so I said, I asked for Eddie Graham. He said, oh, who's, who, who, who's calling? And I said, Bob Roop, uh, yeah, Eddie asked me to call him when I got to town. And well, he's out here right now. You got to call back Monday. And so... <laughs> Uh, you know, we had, I had a, my wife and a, uh, my eight month old, uh, oldest boy with me and to stay in that motel for the two days, Saturday and Sunday to, before calling him Monday, what a pain in the butt that was. I was hoping to be able to, he, cause he told me that when I, we got there, he would take me out and help me get an apartment and all that. Right. And I was hoping to be able to do that right away rather than be, you know, no contact with the officer close, you know, he's. He, they also said, yeah, the office is closed this weekend, so you'll have to call back Monday. Oh, that's what they, I asked him, well, can I call tomorrow? They said, no, the office is closed. You have to call back Monday. So anyway, at the time, that was a not a big deal, but it it bugged me. You know, I was stuck in a motel. You know, you, you get to your destination, but you haven't arrived yet, you know, because you haven't checked in with your employer. So years later, uh, I'm working in the office up there, maybe five, six years later. And uh, Eddie picked up the phone. He's sitting at the, across at the desk across from me. He picked up the phone. And he held his nose. Yeah, who is it? And did the same thing. And it had been him. It had been him on that phone all those years ago when I called. And man, did that piss me off. You know, I thought, uh, first of all, uh, there's a couple of reasons. One was the duplicity and, involved. And the other one was that he didn't even remember because he wasn't back drinking yet. You know, he was still, he had been on the wagon for 15, 20 years. He didn't even remember that he had used that thing with me because he kind of looked at me, he was smiling like he thought that was what he did was cute. Right. And I'm, look, I'm looking at him, if that looks going to kill, he would Well, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to assume that between those five, six years, those were not the only two times that Eddie Graham ever did that. So maybe that's probably why he didn't recall doing it with you. He probably did it to countless people. Over the over the years, uh, well, that's you know that's a good insight, Ray. Very good. The other thing was, I was up there one time with Eddie when Corsica Jean 
Uh, Corsica Jean was uh, him and his brother, Corsica Jean, Corsica, I can't Joe. think of the other. Joe. Yeah. Yeah, they, they you know, they were, uh, I don't know, it might have been a top team for all I know, but Gene uh, had, had uh, retired down there. He had uh, he started a little business, a coffee shop or something, and uh, he was on the he was a referee and carrying the ring. Horrible job, especially if you've been a wrestler. Now you're reduced to referee, and that's okay. That part's okay, but you're also carrying the ring, so you have to take the ring. You take your whole day, you know. And if you're making a thousand dollars a week doing that, that's one thing. But he was probably getting fifty bucks a day. Uh, I, I don't know how much, but I'm sure it wasn't much. So he's carrying the ring. I mean, I say carrying. He's pulling the ring down to the show and uh, shows it didn't have a ring in the building. He was, and then he was referee, and then he had to tear the ring down and carry it back to back to Tampa. So he's doing that, you know. And that's that's a guy that's, you know, showing his sincerity. Let's put it that way. He's doing it. He's there every night. Well, once he opened his shop has happened so many times when wrestlers do that, where they start to show independence. The office, I don't know whether it's just meanness, nastiness. I don't think it's I don't think it's coincidence. I think it's on purpose. They quit booking him as much as they had. And so he was only getting a couple bookings a week. Well, the coffee shop he made that he opened wasn't supporting him. Uh, he needed his wrestling income to, you know, to keep everything going. Mm-hmm. So he came up there and he asked to talk to Eddie and Eddie, I mean, first of here's the thing, instead of Eddie doing him the, showing him the respect, this was a guy from Eddie's era, from his tense time. Right. Uh, and not mine, you know, he was an old timer to me, but instead of showing the respect of asking me to leave so he could talk to Gene alone, he talked to him and he said Gene was like 10 feet away from me when he was talking to him. So Gene has to kind of say, hey, Eddie, you know, hey, uh, I don't. I hope. I don't hope I didn't piss you off or something. You know. But you know, I, I got started my business, and you know, all of a sudden now I've got no bookends. You know, is there anything you could do? You know, I I felt like I've I've helped you out, and Eddie turned ice cold. I told a story uh, about the Mahler last time. Yeah. About when he called me on the phone from the office after Lester had told I I got us kicked out of the hotel. He he was ice on that. He was ice and. His voice was like had just ice and and death in it, you know, like I despise you, you know, I'm so bad. I just and so uh, he had the, he had that same voice when he was talking to Gene, and he said, "I don't owe you a effing thing," and I'm looking at that, and he should have done that in front of me, because you know I m- yeah, much that was, more that was that was disrespectful for sure. Yeah. Oh my God, he, you know, it told me what kind of guy he was. I didn't see that personality, and you know he never showed that to me, to me or at me. Like I said, when I took uh, after he called me with a mauler, uh, when I went to his house, I was expecting I don't know what he was going to do. I mean, I wasn't expecting having to fight him, but I thought maybe he'd fire me or something. But no, he uh, he he came from his boat. He had on his suit, which was a way of showing. Think about it. It just came to me he was having his undertights on. He's out there taking sun. He's showing me he doesn't even have like pockets or anything to have a knife or a gun in. So he's harmless. And he's got his hands open. He's smiling and all that. Because I remember how I used to look at Dr. Dusty Williams. Uh, if I thought I was going to have to fight him for some reason, I remember how <laughs> I got. And I, and I was capable. You know, I was an Olympian. 
I can imagine what Eddie had watched me just destroy guys in amateur wrestling. And uh, so he knew I could snatch him and do what I wanted with him. And so he wouldn't, you know, he didn't know how much he could stay in me. And uh, he had no idea if I was ever going to lose it or whatever. But yeah, when I saw that, that side of his personality, I didn't like it. Cause I, you know, and I, I wasn't, I was, you know, I wasn't a kid. I was 30 by that time. And, you know, I looked at him and I thought, man, I, this guy's a creep. Uh, you know, and that's, that's, he's got that persona to treat this guy so horribly and do it in front of me, which I didn't feel like was respectful to me either. Why do you make me watch that? You belittling this other person that makes me think you think I'm like you, that I, that I like that kind of crap. You know, because that's what I infer from it, that you would have me watch that. And also, how could you think, yeah, how could you think so little of me? You would behave, behave in that way in front of me. That's so disrespectful to me and poor Gene. So Eddie lost uh, by the time, I mean, a few years later, one opposition to him. You know, he lost me, he lost Dusty, he lost Jack, he lost everybody. Uh, because of, you know, contradictions in his character. Right. So, uh, but anyway, I got off the subject a little bit. What they were, what they were trying to do was to groom me to be uh, a top. And they even told me this one time. The one time after I'd worked in the office for like the second or third time as assistant booker, he said, I think you're at a place where now you can, you, you're, you're set to go. And I remember you're in past, times past, I said, it takes 10 years to learn the business. That's if you're just wrestling. If you have the chance to be in the office, like I had, uh, being an assistant booker and seeing what goes on behind the scenes, uh, how to do TVs, figure out how the things are figured, how the office runs, the uh, behavior from the, you know, in the office, you heard all the behavior of the guys, what they were doing on, on the road and all that. I think that's accelerated learning. You know, you're, you're skipping grades in a sense. Sure. So I think I learned in like, like seven years, uh, by the time I got out to San Francisco, I had the equivalent of my 10 years in because I was able to book successfully out there. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like torture. I was able to do it with relatively, I mean, it was steady work. You know, I had to stay on it all the time, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, anything too difficult. So, uh, yeah. And then he said that one time. Now he said, no matter where you go, you'll always be, you'll be able to take care of yourself. Well, that's pretty cool. But I think with that, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on you there, Ray. Oh, but no. I think, think what he was saying was, uh, I know you, Bob, you're loyal. I'm always going to be able to bring you back here when I need, you know, when you've been gone a while, I'll be able to call you and say, hey, could you come back for a couple of years? Uh, because, you know, I was by the time I was a talent, you know, I could have done anything. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting because you were talking about Eddie Graham and how he, I guess he bought in to that territory with uh, Lettrell somewhere around 61. Cause I know Eddie was in there working before that. And he's, I guess he saw money to be made and he takes over to a degree, uh, helps create the TV, brings in Gordon solely. The, the TV leads to angles on television. Now we've got hot storylines drawing more people into the houses. It becomes a, you know, it turns into a big deal. We've got wrestling going on everywhere in the state of Florida, sometimes twice a day in different areas. So uh, obviously things started booming and by the time you go to Japan here in September of 1970, Eddie, the same month, Eddie kind of, well, it's some people report that Eddie forced Cowboy Luttrell out. Other people say that he simply retired. I don't really have enough information here to make a judgment on my own. I might have to talk to Barry Rose or somebody like that about it to really get an idea of what transpired there. 
Uh, and that's kind of when Kiyomuka and Matsuda got points. Uh, Eddie Graham looking to share the wealth a little bit there. Eventually, Dusty going to get some points in there. And uh, I think even Eddie's brother at some point. What's his name? Skip? I think he gets Skip, he got it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, get some points in there at some point as well. But uh, just an interesting situation as things evolved and progressed. And here you were off to Japan as this is transpiring. And you talked about you used to see Cowboy in the office when you first started and then not so much after that. I guess you come back from Japan and maybe maybe not so much anymore. Uh, but before we get to Japan, Bob, just a couple more things I wanted to go over here in the uh, year of 1970, if we can fit them in here on this episode. And sure. that... Um, Jim Dalton, we kind of touched on him a little bit before. We talked about him off air as well. You seem to work Jim Dalton for a couple months here in 1970. Now, you're going to work the tag team of Jack and Jim Dalton later on in 71. But right now, just one-on-one with Jim Dalton. I don't know if you really have much on him. But the fact that you wrestled him for a few months here and then a few months again in 71, thought it might be interesting for you to you know share anything you might have on him. Well, yeah, Jim was uh, – I'm not sure if he's still alive. I hope he is. Um was a, a fun guy, and uh, where he stood out to me, uh, he wasn't like a preliminary wrestler, but he wasn't a big main event guy either. The tag teams, they might have, it might have been in the smaller towns like Fort Lauderdale, uh, Lakeland, or something like that. They might have been a co-main event. I don't know if they would ever been main event in Miami or or uh, Jacksonville. I don't. Maybe, I'm, I'd be. I might be wrong. But one thing I do remember that I was hanging around with Jack Briscoe at the time. I was still a babyface was that Jim was at Jack's house a couple of times when I, I went to his apartment. And he, he had a guitar, and he would play and sing, and he was a funny guy. He'd tell great stories. I don't know why he was there, he, but Jack and him, he, was, he was friends with Jack. Uh, but one story I've got about him that was with him and Don Fargo from a time when they were teamed up. And the time I heard the story was that I think it was Scott Teal's uh, when – uh, Dalton was there and Fargo were both there. It might have been uh, Gulf Coast, but I think it was Sky. Doesn't matter. Fargo's telling a story. Uh, and there's, uh, I don't know, half a dozen people listening. He's telling a story about he got into a, a beef with uh, uh, some guy had called him a bond haired SOB. Only he, he said it, you know, son of a bitch, he called him bond haired. And so Fargo got in a beef with the guy, and, and uh, Dalton was there. And he got in a beef with this guy, and the guy was fairly salty, I guess, so it took him a while, and he got hurt a little bit, and he said, he said finally, he said, I, I got the guy, I ran the guy's head into my bumper of my car five or six times, and he, he decided he was true, he didn't want to fight anymore. In fact, he didn't, want to, he didn't want to stay awake anymore. He said, I looked up, and he said, I'm, you know, I tore up my hand hitting him, I escaped a knee. Dalton was going to, it felt like if he jumped in, on the fight that somebody else might come and jump in to help because now it's two on one that somebody from other from the audience would jump in the fight to, to help, you know, against him. So, but whatever the cause, when Fargo says, what are you doing standing there watching me? You know, he's why don't you come help me with the guy. And Dalton says, he didn't call me no blonde haired son of a bitch. <laughs> and then he, he laughed and even Fargo laughed, you know, uh, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a funny story. And the part about Fargo talking about, yeah, finally, he said, uh, yeah, I had the guy, I smacked his, uh, his head into my bumper four or five times, and that sort of took care of him. And then, but yeah, and, and Dalton was a, a good guy. He was, he was fun. He was, uh, he had, he had a good sense of humor. And that was, 
that's very, very important on the road. There's a lot of guys that took themselves too seriously and or, or, or Dr. Gloomdome that were no fun to be around, but but uh, Jim Dalton on one of them. And it's so, was, it's uh, so funny. He seems like a subdued person. I mean, I've seen some of his promos and things from the early 80s when he was just doing prelims for Crockett. And just to picture him, and I know what happened. They were the Dirty Daltons, uh, Jack and Jim Dalton, Don Fargo being Jack Dalton at the time. But it's so weird to try to picture Jim Dalton hanging out, you know, with Don Fargo, of all people. It was dangerous to be, uh, to be tagged up with Fargo. <laughs> uh, Kenny, Kenny Maine, he got his leg, one of his legs blown up or shot to pieces by. Yeah, shot, I think uh, he was the, shot up. Yeah, that, that ended his career. Yeah, yeah, he was semi, uh, I, I hate to use the word crippled, but he was. He couldn't use that leg. He couldn't ever work again. Yeah, Kenny I don't Mac, know actually, I think, I don't know who it was. Somebody in his family actually contacted me, Kenny Mack, on uh, Facebook, because he heard us, you briefly talk about Don Fargo and him prior, and he said, if you ever need any information on him, we'll let him know, and he'll give it to us. So that's cool that we know he's out there if we we need it. Um, but yeah, that's I've, I've read that story online. It's it's crazy that, you know, they were impersonating a, a biker gang, I guess it was, yeah, or, and yeah, uh, yeah. the biker gang didn't take, you know, too kindly to it, and yeah, that, that was uh, not good. He, his career was over after that. Yeah, they lured him out to a abandoned hangar somewhere next to a river, and they got him in there, and it was, I don't know, they were going to initiate some story, a party, or initiate him to the club, or whatever, and they got him out there, and they said, no, nah, we're tired of you guys well, you know, stealing our gimmick, and so and Fargo took off out the window, and he swam across the river and got away. Uh, but Kenny didn't make it, and they ended up shooting him in the leg four or five. My understanding, he got shot with a shotgun or something in the leg. Now, when I was booking in Florida uh, in, the, in the middle the late 80s, uh, the time after going down there with Kevin, uh, I would see Kenny uh, down at, uh, in Miami. Uh, he went out a couple times. He, he and his wife or his girlfriend would come around, and we'd go out to a bar, and I would buy them all drinks, uh, him and some of the other people that came around. But uh, and you know, he he wasn't bitter. You know, he didn't he never knock he never knocked Fargo, but he never he didn't want to talk about it. And I don't blame him. But uh, uh, it was dangerous being around Don Fargo if you weren't crazy. <laughs> uh, oh man. Uh, Don Fargo, I, I, he comes up not enough here. We need to talk more more about Don Fargo. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, what God. a what a yeah. What you a... talked about Chris Colt being a character. Imagine those two teaming. I, I would have loved to see what that was like. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting as we as I'm just uh, having reflections pop up as we talk about it because at the time I didn't appreciate those guys because a lot of the stuff they were doing was not at the arena was outside the business they were going around being these characters you know not not uh chris so much but like fargo i didn't understand it you know i thought well what are you just crazy or you know why why are you spending that much like you go a week or two without showering you know carrying your gimmick around and bleeding and you have blood in a match and you don't you don't even change your shirt or anything and i my understanding was when they would ride with people on trips that they had to you know one time they put him in the back of his truck because he stuck so bad, and uh, or back of back of the van. They made him ride in the back behind the back seat because he they stuck so bad. And I also I just wondered, you know, why would you do that? You know, why would you want to live like that? But yeah, you know, I look back at it now and I see perfectly why. You know, it was a way to make make a living. You know, when I did Mayhouse Sing, 
I did that gimmick full blast. You know, I I tried to pretend I was at least half time. I was Chris crazed Indian character. So sure. you know, I I understand it better. But yeah, Fargo is Fargo's fascinating. <laughs> uh, guy would nail his own foreskin to the bar and mm-hmm. and get. Mm-hmm. Get up like to leave and go. Oh, oh wait a minute! I'm stuck here. You're stuck. Oh you imagine, God, yeah. imagine the bartenders, especially a female bartender. <laughs> oh my God! Now, I had over. never heard. I had never heard the bar story before about. I, I did hear the story that he would do that when he knew a rookie was coming into the locker room. He would hammer his junk into the the bench or whatever, oh, yeah. and wait for them to walk in and just see, you know, his. Uh, his stuff there nailed nailed to the the seat, but uh, to do it in a bar, wow, amazing! Yeah, I heard <laughs> I heard he told him once about doing it in a bar where he, he went to get up and he went, oh, oh I'm not I'm not I'm you, leaving something behind. And could you imagine? The female, female bartender came down thinking <laughs> he'd left his wallet there or something, and she looked down like you could, she probably couldn't believe what she was oh, seeing. My God. Like, he was endowed in such a way that. He could probably pull like a full foot away from the bar, <laughs> and so there was plenty there to see. And you, I can't imagine a waitress going, "Oh my God, I can't believe what I just saw." You know? How he never uh, got that thing infected with. Uh, I hope he sanitized those nails. I, can you imagine Olympian Bob Roop walking the locker room for the very first time, and that's the first thing you see? I mean, that, that might have that might have ended Bob Roop's wrestling career. But you know what? Maybe not. Maybe no. not. <laughs> you know, amateur wrestlers are rangy too. Not that way. That's a little not different. Nail, <laughs> not nails in the foreskin, no. But you know, guys with you know jocks on their head and all kinds sure. of stuff. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, when, we're all we're all guys. <laughs> I get it. But yeah, that's a different well, level. When, yeah, when you know, when you work so hard, uh, you have to train, and when you're cutting weight, you can't even go out uh, like. Maybe a week, two in a row, you can't go out drinking at night, or or stay at home and drink because you got to cut weight. So when you finally do uh, get a chance to blow steam, you blow it off big time. And uh, you know, there's some of the behavior there. And and there were guys that were character. I wanted to show off, like eating hot peppers and you know all kinds of goofy stuff. Sure. Uh, to show off, just to say, hey, look at me. And uh, but you know, not to the. If they were if they were like students, uh, Fargo was like the professor emeritus of weird stuff. I mean, I can't imagine how exactly would you go? Would you go to someone who pierces ears and you know even belly buttons and say, "Well, uh, Mr. Fargo, uh, uh, you don't want your ear pierced. No, you, you you don't want your lip or your nose. But no, you don't want your belly button pierced. No, you, you say it's something below your belly button that you want pierced." <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how long it took him to come up with the gimmick to start driving nails through it. Probably not long uh, knowing, knowing Don Fargo. But I, um, uh, yeah, another one was a clothespin, a big clothespin that he would <laughs> uh, hook a hook through a napkin, like the cocktail napkin at the dinner table, and he'd get up, and the the napkin would come, the napkin would be swinging. You know, he'd have his out, out of his pants, of course, his member, and it, it'd be swinging. Like down by his knee, the napkin would be swinging back and forth. Attached, you know, you, you look. Now imagine you're eating in a restaurant, and this guy gets up like he's going to the bathroom or something, and he's just walking along, and there's just something swinging below his waist there, and you look, and there's a napkin, and then you look up, and the napkin's got a safety pen. Yeah, a big safety, a big one. You know, the ones that are about two, two and a half inches long. Got a big safety pen through the napkin, and then the other end of the safety pen, 
as soon as this guy's drunk. Can you imagine? I imagine if you were, you were eating your dinner, you might lose your appetite. <laughs> but uh, you, know, oh, you talk yeah. about trying not to look at, at certain things. Sometimes you just can't help it. I mean, that, that seems unavoidable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there were times oh, when I was when I was respectable uh, as a, a parent uh, working at my kid's school, and I was I was a member of the PTA a couple of years. I, I already mentioned this. I think I worked there at lunch. Yeah, I ended up substitute teaching there and then uh, teaching as a registered teacher there. We had a couple of things happen, like where we would have these meetings of people, uh, the movers and shakers at the school, where we lived out in a suburb of, uh, of Lansing, was an uh, upscale community. There's a lot of upper, upper middle class and uh, upper class people in terms of wealth, you know, how much money they make or have that live out there. And at the school, these people would have these get-togethers, and I, not based on my money or socioeconomic status, but only by being a member of the PTA, like keeping schools open, for example. If they're going to close a school, we try to make sure they keep our school open. Uh, you know, you go to these meetings, and they would be so, you'd have these people putting on airs and, you know, pretending to be, you know, like, I'm a doctor, or, you know, I'm a PhD at this, and I, or I make a half a million dollars a year or so. And some of the pretentious stuff was so, just so obnoxious. You know, I, you know, I knew what they were doing, uh, just putting on, you know, trotting out these personas that I thought about having Andre there and having Andre be able to walk through and stop about halfway across the living room <laughs> and just let one off. You know, Andre could part like, he could part like an elephant, man. <laughs> you know, and have him let one off and then look around and look around and a big smile on his face like asking anybody, anybody want to say anything? Or have his Fargo walk through with that napkin hanging from his, his dingus, walk through and say hi to folks. I often thought I would love, I would love to bring those some of the boys in there to shake up those meetings, you know, because they, you know, these people weren't living in a real world. <laughs> right. Of course. Because Andre the Giant farting is in the real world, right? That's... <laughs> That's, well, that's what everybody our, else does. Right? Our real, yeah. Well, everybody farts. I mean, I, <laughs> girls will not admit to doing it, but uh, it's just. I mean, if you eat a normal diet, I mean, there's going to be you're going to have gas sometimes from your intestines. That you know, the only way to get it out, unless you you know you have an operation or something, is to pass gas. That's what they call it, passing gas. But Andre was, you know, <laughs> I heard a story about him and 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 Australia and Japan where he was paying his bill, and uh, there was like uh, 10 people in line behind him. And uh, <laughs> oh, uh, they were, you know, and they were all, Andre, uh, he just, after a while of, of not having any privacy whatsoever, he would lose it, you know, he would. And so Andre, you know, he scratches his head and shifts his butt a little bit and lifts a leg and just let one off. That they said people ran out of the restaurant, some of them, one, one exit of the restaurant was right out of the in the street, in the traffic, and there are people <laughs> running out. It's like it's like a real life <laughs> Godzilla movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you hear that, you can't help but laugh. You know, That's because right. uh, nobody got hurt. You know, these stories not funny if somebody go, does get run over by a truck or something, a, right? And a saw high beer truck or something. No, but you know, it was just uh, you know funny stories. And that's that's why guys rib, and that's why guys tell those stories just to try and make people laugh, to uh, cheer up being on the road. That's why I'm, I mean, we're not on the road, 
But uh, I, I, I like to tell the short. Most of the stories, I, the ones I really enjoy telling, are are funny. I can see the headline for this episode already, Bob. Episode 11, Penises and Fart Jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we're not down to toe cheese. Well, at least you're proving that you have stories you can share with everyone just all over the place. We go from telling the the real-life business story of San Francisco, and this is where we are now a couple episodes later. But I'm I'm, I'm down for it, man. I'm loving it. Good times. You started. Hey, you man. brought in Chris Colt. Yeah, How did well, we talk that, about? I did open yes. the door with that one. You got that. Yeah, now yes, I met Chris <laughs> in Sunday school, and we were singing a hymn together. And, that's right. You know, well, just, it, uh, it is reported he may have died a born again Christian, so that's possible. <laughs> but um, yeah. So yeah, but it, instead of giving me uh, it, it, instead of giving me a wafer and a glass of wine, he gave me a magic mushroom and a beer. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Just uh, stay away from that cacti. That's yeah. <laughs> that's the main goal. So, yeah. But you know what? How do you talk about pro wrestling, uh, honestly, without talking about the things we're talking about? Because everybody saw Andre in the ring. You didn't get to see Andre. That wasn't Andre. That was the performer. You know, you didn't get to see the real Andre. You buy Andre a beer in a bar, he sends a whole case in return. All of them open. You know, 24 beers. Uh, send me the case. I always told him, send me the case closed. I'll take it home. You know, I can't take them home if they're all open. But, uh, uh, <laughs> hey, but you know, good, good stories, great guys. You know, Andre and, would have fun in the ring sometimes, too, and it would become evident. Like, there's a, there's a squash match, a handicap match. I think it's three-on-one on a WWF episode. It's, it's on the Peacock, one of those all-star wrestling shows. And I think Andre's working three guys, and I'm pretty sure one of them was Johnny Rods. And uh, Andre gets them all down. Obviously, he piles them up. He's going to pin them all at once. And Johnny Rods gets laid on top of the other two guys, butt side up. So Johnny Rods' butt's pointing in the air. Andre sits on top of Johnny, and during the pinfall, you can literally right there on the camera, Andre begins pinching uh, Johnny's butt. And smiling, <laughs> smiling. You know, so Andre's having a fun time. Johnny Rods had been there forever. I'm sure he knew Andre very well. And Andre just having a little fun with one of his buddies there, right? On, but it's right there on TV. It's not even hiding it. Well, that's funny. I tell you, uh, Andre could be, uh, he could be, uh, he was a good worker. We're, Bob Orton Jr. and I, when we were tag team partners, uh, we had some heat in Florida. And we were in uh, Tallahassee. And we had, we're against Andre, and I think his partner was Sonny Myers. And we did something where, and Andre, like, I, he and I were not buddies, but uh, mutual respect, and he knew I liked him, and I, he knew I liked to have fun, too. I knew I appreciated his sense of humor. We got, somehow we got rid of Sonny, and we had Andre tied in the ropes. He's standing on the floor, and we've got him tied between the top and the second rope. You see it a lot of times when the guys are in the rank. Right, yeah, I've never, Andre I've never when seen he's that outside before. The yeah, I've never seen him do that with Andre. That's pretty cool. enough. And we had him tied like right in the middle between two posts. We had him tied in the middle. Well, that's mm-hmm. where the rope's loose enough that you, you couldn't do it near the rope, but right. uh, or near the corner. Pull, but right. anyway, and Bobby's on one side of the apron, and I'm on the other side of the apron. We're taking turns running down the apron and kicking him in the head. <laughs> now he had that he had that that big afro hair hair, so you could kick him. Uh, it looked like you kicked him right in the head without ever touching his actual flesh. You know, you would. Just, you know, you would just be an inch or two away from that. But he was selling it. 
and we looked like we were going to kill him. All of a sudden, chairs start flying. Uh, no, I'm not 50 of them, but a couple of them went flying by, and that was enough. And uh, and then, you know, I went to try. I went to try and get him out of the ropes. He wouldn't let me. <laughs> yeah. So he he was a good worker. I mean, who would think? You, you, the fans think they need to rescue Andre the Giant. Right. Oh, he was a good enough worker. He could make you think that they did, because we looked like we were going to kill him. And you very seldom you ever get a chance to get Andre to sell for you, you know? Not that he wouldn't, but you just didn't have the circumstance. No, right, yeah. And, it certainly and, called know, for the right circumstance. One. Right. Yeah, there were no video cameras around. I mean, it wasn't going to hurt anybody. And, uh, and so he just was like one of the boys. And, oh, man. Uh, you get a ton of heat because people liked him, you know. I mean, they they respect him and everything, and uh, yeah, that was that was that was a heady moment. That was fun. Yeah, that sounds like a man. I would I would have loved to have seen that. I've never even I don't I'm not saying it's never happened in all the years since then, but I've never actually seen a guy get tied up on the outside because they were tall enough to do that. That would have been a pretty unique to see. So that's a pretty cool spot there. Uh, I guess we're going to wrap it up here this week, Bob. Now, I do have a couple more questions I want to ask you around this time frame, but it doesn't really pertain to your career or even the wrestlers involved, more so just some booking philosophies. So we'll save that for the beginning of the next episode, because if it's okay with you, next time around, we'll discuss your trip, your first trip ever to the country of Japan. Can you imagine being in the business 14 months and you're off to Japan to work the likes of the giant Baba and crew? Wow. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, a great story. And not just Japan, but Korea, too. We got into a riot in Korea that was uh, so serious. Uh, 3,000 people, Koreans, stayed up past curfew. Curfew was midnight. If they weren't at home at midnight, they were subject to being arrested. And at midnight, we still had 3,000 people out in the parking lot of the, the arena we were at waiting for us to come out, Lars Anderson and myself. So yeah, good. We got some. We got some good stories about Japan and uh, and my that first trip. Well, I mean, you got Ernie Ladd, Nick Bikewinkle, uh Rocky Johnson, uh, Lars Anderson, John Quinn. I don't know how many people he wasn't. He worked up in Washington or something, or maybe Canada. Cowboy Frankie Lane. Yeah, Frankie Lane. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think who else was there. Well, anyway, that was a that was a pretty stellar group. I mean, uh, four or five of those guys are. And Hall of Fame. So that was a great group to be with. Well, uh, what was so unique about that time frame, for those who don't know, for those who don't really know the back history of Japanese wrestling, this was in the JWA, which was prior to the split that created New Japan, Antonio Inoki, All Japan, and the Giant Baba. They were both here working for the JWA at this point, and you actually get to wrestle both of them on this tour. Right. Yeah, that was great. Pretty unique. Uh, yeah, it was. Um uh, and as First you said, what, what a great uh, troop of guys to kind of hang out with over there, too. Bachwinkle, Ernie Ladd, talk about a contrast there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, big-time contrast. <laughs> Nick and I hung around a lot together. We had a lot of fun together. And uh, I got to know him and uh, really like him. I appreciate him. I, I enjoyed knowing him my whole career. He was uh, a great guy. But uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I learned a lot. Oh, it's my first chance, you know, the first match. Uh, I first my first time as a heel. I mean, over there, and so uh, I thought the guy I was working with was trying to take over as a heel. Uh, so uh, I was the first match on the first night of the first card that we worked, and we worked thirty shows while we were there in seven weeks. And uh, 
we beat the crap out of it. Yeah, I'm supposed to be this amateur Olympian. Well, I don't know if we ever got a hole in the whole match. We beat the crap out of each other because I thought he was trying to be a heel. <laughs> I don't know what he thought, but we beat the absolute crap out of each other. These damn Americans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we got some good stories. Uh, for next time, that'll be awesome. Good. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm gonna. I I have the list of everybody involved in that tour right in front of me. I have the results of the entire tour as well. So maybe we'll break it down as best we can. See who you remember from the Japanese side of things, and of course, we'll definitely touch on all the boys from America, from Canada, and beyond. And uh, yeah, obviously, you have some stories, some things that went on outside of the ring as well while you were there. So your first experience in Japan, your first experience wrestling some of the Japanese stars. It's going to be a hell of a show. Something very different and unique that we haven't done yet here, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's going to be great. Thanks, Ray. All right, guys, it's time to wrap it up. So before we do, Bob, I just want to thank you again for telling these amazing stories. If anybody wanted to laugh this week, it's not so much about wrestling education this week, Bob. It was about having a good time before we oh, jump yeah. back into things and talk all about Japan. Because I guess being one of the boys, it was always about, to a degree, having a good time, at least when you weren't in the ring. So uh, I, I'm sure we'll continue to share some stories like that next week. Maybe not so much about penises and farts, but I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure they're going to be good times anyway, had over in Japan. But uh, yeah, Bob, just thank you so much for sharing everything today. And of everything you shared today, I really love that Chris Colt stuff. The, every, not just the, the ha-ha funny jokes, but just getting to know a little more about the person that was Chris Colt. Well, I still have a fond place in my heart for Chris. You know, I'm sorry to... I just learned today how he, he uh, his life ended. But, you know, I remember him with affection and, you know, and gratitude. You know, he, he helped me. He uh, he helped educate me. And it was fun. You know, he was, he was a fun guy to be around. And so I'm glad that I, I really appreciate you bringing him up. And I also appreciate all the folks that are out there listening to us. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without him. So thank you. Everybody have a happy new year. And we'll see you next time. All right, guys, that's going to do it here this week. We're going to wrap it up. I want to thank Bob one more time for taking the time out to share his stories and entertain us all. I invite you guys to go friend Bob over at Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. And of course, you guys can follow me, Ray Russell, on X, formerly Twitter, at Rasslin Grenade. It's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And hey, guys, give it a try talking about that $5 all-access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You won't be disappointed with all the gifts you get there for just five bucks. But until next time, when we're off to our very first trip of Japan, we appreciate you guys listening as this has been another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. <laughs> <laughs>